As you can see, we are in Philippi, heading into Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Turn there with me. Let me read it. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's open in prayer. Uh, Father, we come, we, we meet together, Lord, on the Lord's day to, to worship you for, for what you've done, God. And we, we get this description here of, of who you are, this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And a father who, who sent his son and Jesus who willingly came, Lord, and, and, and took on flesh. He who is God, who is equal to you and equal to the spirit, took on flesh in order to become obedient even to the point of death. So that wretched sinners like us who rejected you may be forgiven by you and through the blood and atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord. Because he is sinless, because he is worthy. You brought him back to life as he rose from the dead three days later and exalted him to the throne in heaven where he rightfully sits. God, may, may your spirit do justice to our hearts and minds and souls with this text today, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help us to worship you through it, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a recap, last week we covered the first five verses of chapter 2. It was a, another call for unity by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. And the main point of last week's sermon was that humility is what's necessary in order to fulfill that call, especially the call of unity to, to, to be of one mind, to think the same, to have one spirit, and to be united together for one cause. And, and the example of humility that Paul gave us wants us to consider and tells us to adopt is the humility of Jesus Christ. Today, we are going to take a deeper look into the person of Christ himself. It is a subject that is of vital importance, which has also brought many controversies throughout centuries. 
Yet the faith once delivered to the saints has always confessed the same doctrinal statement regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Mainly that Jesus is the eternal begotten Son of the Father who took on flesh by being born of the Virgin Mary, who died for our sins, was buried, and rose three days later from the dead. In short, what the church has confessed through the centuries is from the scriptures. What the church took from the scriptures is that the Bible teaches Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is one person with two natures. And he is the savior of sinful men. Now, believe it or not, there was a time when the buzz throughout entire communities, throughout entire towns, was whether or not Jesus was the same essence as the Father. Is Jesus, does he have the same nature as the Father, the same attributes as the Father? Is he eternal like the Father is? Has he always existed or was Jesus created? Probably not taking place, that conversation, in downtown Leavenworth right now or many places across the world. But... but. It has been said historically that that topic, Jesus being God, Jesus being eternal, Jesus being one with the Father, was so common in the fourth century that you could go to the butcher shop and as the butcher was slicing your meat, he would look at you and say, so what do you think? Was there a time that Jesus existed or was he created? (laughs) How the times have changed. And when I first read about that, uh, I couldn't help but laugh, because if you remember from one of my previous sermons, if, if you were here, I told you about the time there was a woman I was serving food to at a country club I worked at, and she listened to one of my sermons on, on Facebook, and her critique was that I, I used too much Bible. And, and, and so her, her critique was, instead of me preaching so much and teaching so much from the Bible, what she needed was not that. She needed something tangible that she could take to the grocery store with her. So here you go. It's today's lesson. When you go to the deli at Safeway this afternoon, ask the clerk, hey, was there a time Jesus existed or was he created? What do you think? There's the application. Now, I want to go through a little bit of that history about the debate over Christ's divinity, which arose early in the 4th century. So if you like history, you're probably like this. If not, just come back in in like five minutes and we'll get back into the text. Around 318 to 319 AD, a pastor named Arius wrote a letter to the bishop of Alexandria named Alexander in regard to the eternality of Jesus. Arius denied that Jesus was eternal and claimed Jesus was created. In his letter, Arius argued, Jesus was begotten by the Father, but Jesus is not eternal, nor co-eternal, nor is he equally self-sufficient with the Father. 
And therefore, since Jesus is not eternal and not the same substance as the Father, he cannot be co-equal with the Father. And if he's not co-equal and he's not co-eternal, Arius reasoned, therefore Jesus cannot be God. Well, that didn't sit right with Alexander. And through the next couple years, a ripple would begin to divide the church because of Arius' teaching. Eventually, it got so bad that Emperor Constantine had one of his men mediate a small council in order to stop the chaos that was taking place and, and hopefully bring peace. The small council condemned Arius' teachings, but it didn't stop anyone from teaching it. And that, that specific teaching that Jesus is not God, Jesus is not co-equal, co-eternal, is called Arianism. So therefore, Constantine's theological advisor recommended a larger council to make a definitive ruling over the eternality and substance of Jesus, or nature of Jesus. And Constantine agreed. He invited over 1,800 bishops throughout the Roman Empire as far as the Eastern Hemisphere to the West. And on May 20th, 325 AD, an estimated 250 to 318 bishops from all over the known world showed up to Nicaea, and this became known as the Council of Nicaea. Now, out of every person who came, and after all the debates, the theological debates about Christ were said and done, only three of them refused to confess that Jesus Christ was both eternal, like the Father, and the same substance as the Father. Which means every other person who attended believed and confessed that Jesus Christ is God. And on June 19th, they wrote down the Creed of Nicaea, which confessed the Son of God shares the same essence as the Father. Afterward, Arius was exiled and condemned a heretic. But due to political shifts and theological drifts, that same controversy continued and even widened. And eventually, new emperors would exile those who actually confessed that Jesus was one with the Father. And this would continue for the next few decades. However, after Bishop Alexander died, his student Athanasius replaced him as bishop. And if you know anything about Athanasius, he was a man set on fire to uphold the creed of Nicaea. And he was also determined to make sure that the universal uh, church didn't just confess Jesus and Father share the same nature, but the Holy Spirit does too. So not only is Jesus God, but the Holy Spirit is also God. And after Athanasius' death, he was preceded by three men from Cappadocia, known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Two brothers, Basil and Gregory, and another, Gregory of Nazianus, who all took Athanasius' mantle and fought to preserve the one nature shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one nature, three persons. Now, Basil died in 379 AD, shortly before Emperor Theodosius called for another council to meet. This time it would take place in Constantinople, and in 381 AD, 150 bishops from the eastern part of the empire met and reaffirmed the teaching from the Creed of Nicaea, written in 325 A.D., but they wrote out a longer creed known as the Nicene Creed. I said the sermon would be a bit longer, that was why. All right, 
Back to verse 6. Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is God. Paul says, and in verse 5, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Our English translations, or your English translations, have different variants in regard to certain words in this passage. One of them is, is the word that the Apostle Paul uses for form. Here in verse 6, existing in the form of God. Some translations have Paul saying he existed in the form of God. Some translations say Jesus existed in the nature of God. Now, the Greek word Paul uses here is morphe, which he uses again in verse 7 when he says Jesus took on the form of a servant or the, or the morphe of a servant. And the only other time that word is used in the New Testament is in Mark 16, 12, which says Jesus appeared in another form to the two of them. And at the very least, to try to understand that word at Mark's gospel, we can say whatever form or morphe Jesus appeared in, he was at least visible to those disciples. There's a wide debate regarding which word Paul is using or how he's defining form here or morphe. And it's good to try and be precise to understand exactly what he's saying. What, what I'm more concerned about in this sermon is that we simply have a clear understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate to us about Jesus. Mainly, Jesus is God. We don't need a Greek dictionary or lexicon to do that. All we need to do is understand the context of the passage, what, which is what Paul's calling the Philippians. He's writing to the Philippians and saying, have the same attitude, have the same humility of Christ, who even though he was God, didn't use that to his advantage. It wasn't something that he viewed as something to grasp or hold on to. And as we said last week, that means that Jesus never used his status as creator to not serve those whom he created. And even though Jesus uses the earth as his footstool, he never let that stop him from washing the disciples' feet. And finally, even though Jesus has the power to raise his life up, he never used that omnipotence as justification to keep him from laying his life down. But why? Because he did not count his equality with God as something to be exploited. As far as being, is Christ being the nature of God or being in the image of God, both are taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Yes, he's the nature, he's the image. We read it this morning, but Paul told the Colossians in 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, right? Scriptures testify to that, which means he, he doesn't have boundaries or parts like we do. We are finite, but God is infinite. And because he is spirit, he is also invisible. Yet Paul says, <laughs> Jesus is that physical image of God that we can actually see. And 
Jesus is the exact representation of God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews he says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of God's glory. What is the glory of God? It's his essence. It's his nature. It's his attributes. It's what makes God God and nothing else. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus, this Jesus, is exactly whatever makes God God, Jesus is that. That is his nature. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And then according to John's gospel, he writes, you all know this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Allow me to translate. Can I put it there? Nope. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is John writing there? Jesus was in the beginning because He's eternal. And the Word was with God. Jesus, the Word, was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Word was God. And Jesus is the Son of God. And then next, in John's Gospel, he says, All things were created by Him and for Him. And nothing came to be that came to be without Him. You see, John begins his gospel by, by proclaiming that Jesus is one, is the one who created the universe. I mean, think about how that sounded 2,000 years ago, who met this Galilean, this, this man born in Bethlehem. And what John is saying about him, John is saying that that Jesus who died on a cross, rose from the dead, that, that that same Jesus set the boundaries of the seas at creation by decreeing no further. That Jesus measured the heights of every mountain at creation by decreeing no higher. Jesus set the climates for every single hemisphere in the world by decreeing no warmer. Jesus is the one who populated the earth with its inhabitants, both creeping things and humans, by decreeing, let us make man in our image. Jesus is fully divine. And with that in mind, <laughs> of what, what John says about Jesus, and what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus, and what Paul tells the Colossians about Jesus, we, we can see the gravity of Paul's statement here in verse 6. It says, That same Jesus chose not to use His divine power or authority to His gain. Instead, the immortal King of glory, the highest rank above all creation, 
willingly became a mortal man. When you're going through like this deep theology and sermon prep, you're wondering what in the world is the application for the church today. And as, 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 I, as I think through that, how, how does this apply to our life? Every single one of us who sit here today and, and those who don't sit here today, how does that apply to humanity? How does, what, how does knowing Jesus is fully divine, the creator, that he is God, how does that apply to our life? And, and as I thought about that, I'm reminded of a quote by a dear friend who said, Timothy, sometimes the only application is to worship God. I find that true here. Because while Paul's explanation of Jesus results in plenty of mystery and wonder, it brings us to the reality that if Jesus is truly God, then he is worthy to be worshipped. And that reality of worshipping him should invade every aspect of our lives. He is worthy to obey. He is worthy to submit to. He is worthy to sing to. He is worthy to give to. He is worthy to die to sin for and to fight against sin for and to repent when we've done something wrong for. He is, he is worthy to prioritize and commit our families to gather every Sunday to worship Him. He's worthy to devout, devote time out of each day to open up the Word of God and spend time with Him, learning about Him. Trained. And because He is God, no matter what you're going through today, He is worthy to trust in every area of your life. Sometimes, the only application to the sermon is to worship God. Jesus is also fully human. In verse 7, instead, he, Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. That was Paul saying in verse 7. We just heard Jesus is God in verse 6, and now in verse 7 he says, Instead of Jesus just showing up in His divine glory to, to conquer His enemies, He actually chose to veil His glory, which, which testifies to what the prophet Isaiah said about the suffering servant. And we esteemed Him not. And He, he veils His glory by taking on a human nature just like one of us. And He didn't just appear to be a human. He was the full embodiment of everything it means to be a human. He had a body, a spirit, and a human will. Jesus got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to read. He got tired and took naps. That's, 
I love being Christ-like in that, taking naps. Jesus took naps. You want to be like Christ on a Sunday afternoon? Take a nap. He sweat. He wept. And he was buried. And he bled. He was born in a physical body. He lived his life in a physical body. He died and was buried in a physical body. And he rose from the dead three days later in his same physical body. And then it gets a little bit richer or deeper because even though Jesus is human and and, and assumed and took on a human nature, it is still imperative that we understand When he was born of the Virgin Mary, he never stopped being divine. He didn't lose his godness. Which means even even once this infant king was born in the Bethlehem manger, he didn't lose any of his divine attributes that made him God. As one of my favorite professors, Steve Wellam, said, as, as he expressed so clearly in one of his books, The incarnation of Jesus was not an act of subtraction. It's an act of addition. In other words, what he's saying is is Jesus, who had a divine nature, took on a human nature without losing his divine essence. Therefore, remaining divine, this infant king born in Bethlehem, even though at this point he's fully human, he still sustained everything in the universe he created. That's a lot to chew on. We're not going to solve all the mysteries of Jesus' two natures this morning. But, but as Christians, this passage and, and, and the Bible teaches us that, that we must confess that the second person of the Trinity God the Son left His throne in glory in order to become a human, yet in doing so, He never lost His divine nature. This glorious. Rather, Paul says, He simply veiled it in His flesh. Here's another point of application. Read dead authors. (laughs) I wish I would have believed that earlier on in Christianity. I believe it now. That's one thing I have found is that while modern authors try to explain theology to us, there's no substitute for the ones who those modern authors have read themselves and have learned from themselves. And a lot of times, even some of the modern authors, it just sounds like they're repeating what the dead authors have already said. For instance, one dead author, one of the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, he preached a sermon on the two natures of Christ in the 4th century. We still have it written down for us today. And to date, I am certain that I have never heard a clearer or better explanation of Jesus' two natures. So I have to quote him from a sermon. Gregory said this, Jesus 
was begotten of a woman, yet he was already eternally begotten. Begotten of a woman, yet she was a virgin. That it was a woman makes him human. That it was a virgin makes him divine. On earth he has no father, but in heaven no mother. He was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection he unloosed the swaddling bands of the grave. He was laid in a manger, but extolled by angels, disclosed by a star, and adored by magi. He was exiled into Egypt, but he banished Egyptian idols. He had no form or beauty for the Jews, but for King David, he was fairer than the children of men. As a man, he was baptized, but absolved sins is God. As a man, he was put to the test, yet as God, he came through victorious. He hungered, yet fed thousands. He thirsted, yet exclaimed, whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. He was tired, yet he is the rest for the weary and the burdened. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He was sold and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. He was weakened and wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He was brought up the tree and nailed to it. Yet, by the tree of life, he restores us. He dies. Yet, by death, conquers death. He is buried. Yet, he rises again. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Well, Paul is going to tell us in, in this final point is that our king wears a crown of thorns. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Why? If Jesus is God, if he's the creator, if he's the king of kings and lord of lords, why didn't he just come and take his rightful throne? In, in, in John 6, the, the apostle, he, he writes in, in verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, referring to Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and the two fish, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people, Israel was right in their desire to make him king. He is the king of Israel. He's the descendant of Abraham and David, who, who David was told would sit on the throne of Judah forever and ever. I go one step further. If you're in your, your yearly Bible reading plan and you're getting into that you know, Exodus Leviticus portion, <laughs> he's the king of all creation 
whose rightful place was above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And, and John says, he ran. He ran. He turned it down. He turned down that opportunity to take his rightful place on the throne. I mean, just imagine for a second, if you will, a, a worker who is paid minimum wage and being called into the office by, by their boss and the boss saying, hey, this is your father's business. Therefore, even though you're the lowest person on the totem pole, we're going to make you CEO of the entire company. And imagine that, that employee just saying, nah, I think I'd rather just live out this minimum wage. I think I'd just really enjoy the lowest rank in the company gig. He'd be crazy. That just, that just wouldn't happen. No human would do that. He, any employee paid minimum wage, goodness, especially in Leavenworth, would jump at the chance to go from the lowest man on the totem pole right, to the head of the entire company. I, I know that this illustration, that it's not perfect, and no illustration does complete justice. It's just the best I could come up with to try to understand the humility of Christ. Because who in their right mind would give up being king? To, to answer that question, we, we need to just go back and, and first answer, why did the Son of God become human in the first place? Why didn't Jesus in all his glory, all his power, just come down on the white horse and destroy the Romans and destroy the religious hypocrites? Like, Why go through all the trouble of entering this broken world to dwell among a people who reject you? It's... <laughs> it's there's one answer. That's it. It was necessary for Jesus to come as a human. Because the first Adam that God created in Eden sinned and corrupted the entire world and its inhabitants. Therefore, what humanity and creation needed was an incorruptible Adam an incorruptible human who could undo the curse of sin and triumph over death. And, and, and a, a, a greater Adam who could recreate the world without sin or death. But no human, there was no human who could ever live up to that task, including me and you. As we see in Romans 5 says, look, once Adam sinned, we were all born into sin. So what we needed was someone who, who was divine, who would not be born into sin, and who would not sin even when they were tempted. Yet what humanity also needed was a human who could substitute himself for their sins by taking their place on the cross. And in other words, for our redemption, 
for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, it was necessary for Jesus Christ to assume flesh. As the author of Hebrews says, again in 9.22, quoting the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Bible. Yet the only blood that was an acceptable payment for sins was from a human. It was the blood of a human. But it had to be the blood of a sinless human. We needed a Savior who was fully divine, and we also needed a Savior who was fully human. So therefore, Paul says, when the Son of God came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. If Jesus would have taken his throne and established his kingdom before he died for those who would enter his kingdom, then loved ones, none of us would be with him in his kingdom. And therefore, in love and in humility and in complete obedience, our king wore a crown of thorns and gave up his life so that we may live. And therefore, Paul says, for that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, use your word, Lord, to transform our hearts and our minds, to call us to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with our lives, not just on Sunday, but when we leave here, when we wake up in the morning, and on Tuesday and Wednesday, Lord, and throughout the week, transform us, God, into those who worship in spirit and truth, to those who truly know and understand you are worthy, Lord, and the work that you did for us is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.